Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Bone Talk. My name is Claire Gill. I'm the CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And today, we're going to be talking about National Menopause Awareness Month, which is October. It's an opportunity to educate women about changes that can occur in the body during this phase of life. Most women know that the average age of menopause is 51, but it can come much sooner for others and later for some people. With menopause comes a lot of hormonal fluctuations and hot flashes, among some of the other symptoms. But during this time, declining estrogen levels can also lead to bone loss, which many women don't know, and this increases your risk of osteoporosis. Today, we are delighted to be speaking with Dr. Sharon Allison Odie. Dr. Allison Odie is an author, health educator, physician, and health strategist consultant. She is CEO of Calden Inc. and Beautiful Women Inside and Out Inc., and is also the executive director of the Koshar Foundation. Dr. Allison Odie serves as a health strategist for several national companies and organizations and develops and oversees programmatic agendas with long and short-term strategies, ensuring effectiveness and achievement of goals. She completed her medical degree from the East Carolina University School of Medicine and a three-year residency program in internal medicine at Union Memorial Hospital. It was during her residency training that she developed a keen interest in the elderly and subsequently completed an additional two-year fellowship in geriatric medicine at the same institution. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Allison Odie. We're thrilled to have you and really excited to talk about this really important topic. Thank you so much for having me on. I know this is just going to be fun. I hope so. I hope so. And I think it'll be really impactful and interesting for women to learn more about menopause and its effect on bone, but also so many other things affecting us at menopause. So we know that gender and menopause are two of the risk factors for developing osteoporosis, among many others. And studies show that women can lose up to 20% of bone mass in the first five to seven years after menopause. Results from the Women's Health Initiative released in the early 2000s had showed that there were some concerns about hormone replacement therapy, thus making it really something that healthcare providers were reluctant to prescribe for a long period of time. But more recently, we're learning that the risk may not have been as great as they previously thought. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that whole Women's Health Initiative came out and what it kind of told women, and then again, now that we've, you know, another 20 years down the road, what people are now saying about hormone replacement therapy? Yes, you know, the Women's Health Initiative was really a landmark study, and just at its basic level, we know that women have been studied less in medicine than our male counterparts, and so the data has been sparse, and when you look at 
things that were deemed as quote unquote sensitive, such as menopause, such as osteoporosis, and certainly heart disease and other things, we had just very little data and the data was not from a diverse pool of women. And so while the women WHI was very impactful, as you said, nothing has come out has significant since the 2000s. And one of the biggest takeaways from that study was a red flag on hormone replacement therapy, which was widely used prior to that data coming out and then drastically reduced in the year, five years, and certainly now when we look at women, hormone replacement therapy, and at the end of the day, how sound was that data? Well, it was a longitudinal study. And so while there were some precautions that were there, we now know that the risks were a bit overstated and the pool was not as diverse. So certainly the National Osteoporosis Foundation gives great information on risk factors as it relates to osteoporosis. And, and I use these in talks all around the country because if we just look at uncontrollable risk factors versus controlled risk factors, things we can change, things we can't change, that gives us a better view at hormone replacement therapy. So no, you can't change that you're over age 50. We don't want to change that. What's the alternative? Being female, going through menopause, a family history of osteoporosis, and being small and thin versus heavier, and having a history of broken bones and height loss. So that's uncontrolled, which you all talk about greatly. Then you have those things that we can change. So populations of women that don't get enough calcium and vitamin D, don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, or you actually swing to the other side and get too much protein drink too much coffee, and eat too much salt. Having an inactive lifestyle, not exercising, smoking, drinking too much alcohol, and losing weight. Ironically, we are in medicine telling women all the time, with menopause, we know that you start to pick up pounds. We want you to keep your weight under control for heart disease, diabetes, and other things. But actually, rapid weight loss and too much weight loss increases our risk factors for osteoporosis. And when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, one reason why women say they don't want to take hormone replacement therapy is because of weight gain. Now, the link between osteoporosis and menopause, if you look at data after the WHI report, has been very sparse as we look at large-scale United States studies. There are some European studies. There's a Polish study that came out in February that basically said that a higher percentage of persons with a lowered bone mass and lower strength level was found in a group of early menopausal women. We know that that correlated with uh, hormonal exposure, but that was Mm -hmm. a small Polish study, not very diverse. But that's about what we have. There's another study which I'm looking at and continue to follow intently, and that's the SWAN study, and that's a study of women's health across the nation. Recently, in January, I believe, they said, came out with calcium supplementation use. Yes, that is good, which we talk about a lot, but it really does not decrease the risk of fractures. And so we're still looking at 
what is happening in women's health as it relates to that time of perimenopause, because we know mm-hmm. that bone loss starts to occur in perimenopause and goes for several years, as you said, postmenopause. And then right. finally, even with all of the data and hormone replacement therapy, perhaps not having as many of the negative side effects as we once thought, we do know that for primary prevention and primary treatment, it is not recommended that estrogen has used at this point. It's just not recommended. Now, what I tell people all over the country in talks is we've gotten a little crazy in hormone replacement therapy. If you are pulling out your hair, and sweating out your hair, sweating through your bedclothes. Your life is disrupted. Mood swings are so much that you cannot get through the day because your perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms are so great. You're going to need to suck on a little hormone replacement therapy to get through the phase. And you have to keep everything else in check and make sure that you get your screenings. The pendulum cannot swing to all or nothing. Right. That's such a good point. We talk so often really, you know, with osteoporosis and with so many other chronic diseases and, you know, people are so concerned about treatment, side effects and and Mm -hmm. risks. And I think everything, again, is relative. It really is a personal decision that you have to weigh Mm -hmm. with your healthcare provider. As you said, if your life is so disruptive and so miserable because of hormonal changes due to menopause, then you really need to weigh the risks of hormonal replacement therapy. And you might be very, very willing to take on potential, you know, slight risks because it really will make such an impact for you. And, you know, I remind patients all the time as I'm talking with them, aspirin has side effects. We've just, it's again what you're used to, right? And making those really personal decisions with our healthcare provider. But yeah, you're right. There's so much more we need to do and learn about women's health We've been following the SWAN study as well, and it's great that there are some new studies like that out there to provide a little bit more information, but we have a long way to go if we're going to really address women's health care at midlife and beyond. So we have a lot more to do. But continuing to talk a little bit about the hormone replacement therapy or lack thereof, as you said, it was kind of very widely prescribed. And we do know that there is a bone benefit, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. keeps the estrogen allowing longer, maybe prevents the bone loss. But now we likely have a whole generation of women who never went on hormone replacement therapy after the WHI guidelines and might be at even greater risk now for bone loss than previous generations. What do you recommend women do to broach the subject with their healthcare provider, either their primary care physician or their OBGY about menopause and its relative osteoporosis risk. Because sometimes I find that, well, we know statistically women aren't getting tested for osteoporosis, but I think sometimes it's kind of, you know, just ignored by some healthcare professionals. How should women approach bringing it up and when? I am a huge advocate for partnership and have based my career on partnership in health. And I tell persons around the country, yes, your health care provider, whether it's your physician, a physician's assistant, your internist, your OBGYN, all of those, your dentist, all of those are on your team. But ultimately, you are the quarterback. Ultimately, you are the person that has to make sure that you get the information you need and that you convey, I am 
worried about or concerned about this, but before you even make an appointment or go into a doctor's office, I ask that you, as with everything in medicine, know what you're working with. So know your family history, and the only way to know your family history and to know your other risk factors, number one, is to be honest with yourself about your risk factors, but number two, around family history is to have a conversation and to perhaps memorialize it in writing electronically, and I encourage people to do that. There are several tools out there that really will say this is what runs in our family, and osteoporosis, osteopenia has to be on the list, particularly for women. And so know your risk factors, be honest. And so as I talked about earlier, we know that excessive alcohol use is a risk factor for osteoporosis. Well, be honest with your healthcare provider to say, I actually don't drink eight ounces of alcohol a day. I drink 16 ounces a day or most days of the week, et cetera. I do smoke. Number one, know your risk factors. And when you go to your appointment, be very clear to say, I'm concerned about osteoporosis. This is my family history. This is what I know about my family history, both for females in my family and males, because often Mm -hmm. we leave males Mm -hmm. out of the equation. But if you have a family history of men that have had osteoporosis, share that. And then, like I said, be honest, be honest about your exercise regimen, the vitamins, minerals, and supplements that you take, et cetera, and ask about your vitamin D level, should you have that checked, and then ask for, and and we do a lot with the Koshar Foundation with women on educating, particularly minority women, on DEXA scans and the need for DEXA scans in this community. And so all of those are important steps to have the dialogue about osteoporosis and menopause and what are your real symptoms. And then finally, something that I helped develop years ago and certainly teach all over the country now is ask me three. You should not leave a dentist's office, an OBGYN's office, an internist's office, a podiatrist's office without these three simple questions being answered. Number one, what's my main problem? Two, why is it important to me? And three, what should I do about it? In every healthcare situation, if you walk away knowing the answers to those questions, you are better equipped to make decisions about your healthcare and your provider gets insight into how to help you. That's fantastic. And again, I think sometimes I even have gone into appointments where I've written down my questions because sometimes you get into conversations and you forget what you really wanted to ask or you become nervous or the the doctor doesn't bring it up and then you're concerned about bringing it up. Can you say that again? We're going to post that, I think, separately with this podcast, but I would love, can you repeat those three things that we should ask at every appointment? I think that's so valuable. Great. It is called Ask Me Three. What is my main problem? Why is it important to me? And the last question is, what should I do about it? Comprehensive, whether it's an ingrown toenail or severe menopausal symptoms. If you get those three questions answered, you have the tools that you need to take a step forward in your health. 
that's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's so valuable. And again, at any age for women, and we were talking about menopause, post-menopause, but really, if we can get younger women to even think about that and being their own advocate in doctor's appointments and coming away with those three questions answered, we'd be doing a lot more to advance women's health. So thanks for And I love what you said about writing down, and I always tell people, write down your questions. We have smartphones. You know, start a little journal on the phone or give yourself a video message or a voice message and say, hey, I'm worried about this. If you take your blood pressure, if you take your temperature because you're having all these fluctuations in temperature, take those charts in and say, this is it. And then finally, I really want to say, and I'm really known to say this, if you cannot talk to your healthcare provider, if you cannot talk to your physician and you always are feeling rushed and like, I just can't get to the bottom and I don't feel the communication is great, you need to talk to a friend and talk to someone else about who they would recommend that you go to that you're comfortable with. This is a healthcare team. And no, you do not have to continue to see a physician or healthcare provider that does not adequately communicate with you and put you at ease. It is a sort of a healthcare marriage. And so you want that communication. And I teach doctors how to talk to patients, but I also teach patients how to talk to doctors. That's so important. Absolutely. We've done a bunch of things on our website as well about, you know, checklists to bring to your doctor to get those Mm -hmm. questions answered. And, you know, I struggle sometimes because I do give that advice for both the National Osteoporosis Foundation and the National Menopause Foundation that I founded. I'm struck by, you know, those of us who have the opportunity to seek out another doctor in our community, but in very rural areas and, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in the town where I grew up, there weren't a lot of other doctors to go to. Everyone went to that one doctor, right? So sometimes telling women, well, just find another doctor isn't a possibility in their life, in their community. But the thing we can arm them with then is where to find information that they can get the answers to their questions that help them have a better dialogue with that physician that they maybe, you know, have to go to because of their insurance or have Mm -hmm. to go to because of their location and such. But there's so much more that we can empower women to do. And as you said, we're the quarterbacks. We really have to take charge and say, this is what's happening. So if a woman then is starting or thinks she might be having symptoms and maybe should address menopause with her healthcare provider, but I think so many women are confused, you know, and even despite the amount of information that is available and out there, women still don't seem to kind of have all the facts they need to about like menopause. So for a woman, again, kind of approaching that age, late 40s, early 50s, what would be the sort of symptom that you said, look, if this is happening to you, bring it up to your doctor, right? This is a good time. This is a good one. Because sometimes we might think, oh, I'm a little forgetful, but that's just you know, the stress of life. So they wouldn't consider that maybe a menopause symptom. What are some of the solid ones that women can say, oh yeah, it's that time of life? Well, this is what I love, and that's Ask Mama. I'm from the South, so my mother is not called mother. She's called Mama. And so Ask Mama, number one, because we know that a young woman will start her period within about 12 to 18 months of when her mother did. And unless there is surgical menopause, ask your mother when she started going through menopause, because once again, we know that the timeline will be similar. So that's one of your 
your first clues. And then I always shock audiences when I speak to them and say, how many days is menopause? And people say, oh, five <laughs> years, I had a woman once in oh, it's 10 years. It keeps going on. I had an 80-year-old once in the audience say, I still get a hot flashes, et cetera. And I said, no, how many days is menopause? And if you've heard me talk before, I say, don't answer. And finally, we get through all of that. And I say, no, menopause is actually just one day. Perimenopause is before the 365 days hits that you have not had any bleeding. Menopause is 365 days after your last period, the last time you see blood. And then the day after that is postmenopause. But menopausal symptoms last for perhaps years after that. So I tell people, go buy something, go shopping, celebrate your day of menopause. But (laughs) when you set it up in that way, and then you say, what are the changes? They evolve. And every woman does not necessarily have the same experience with menopause. So when you're in periods, you used to be every 28 days and now it's every 40 days or it's every 21 days or as I say because I'm Dr. Sheeran let's keep it real your period just loses its mind and comes when it wants to come and (laughs) stops when it wants to and you think you're fine and you have on your cute white pants and all of a sudden you now have a bleeding episode that lets you know that something's going on and you certainly need to talk to your doctor if you have excessively heavy bleeding or spotting and that's not your usual and of course we know uterine fibroids and all of that but that's not your usual the period lasts longer or certainly one red flag is you've had no bleeding for 364 days you're ready to celebrate your day of menopause and that night you get a period that is a cause for concern and then has a sidebar if you have gone through menopause for several years not had any bleeding and all of a sudden you start bleeding, that's an immediate call to your doctor. Hot flashes, which are one of the hallmark symptoms of menopause and the increased frequency, that yes, we know that that varies from woman to woman. And so hot flashes, mood changes, you know, everybody harps on that, especially men, because men want to blame our mood changes and our irritability on, well, either you're having your period, so you're moody, or now you're menopausal or you're moody, and it may just be we don't like you, the man in our life, you just may be getting on our nerves. But yes, mood changes. And then sex and sexuality, which we do not talk about enough. There are two things that happen. Either women going through menopause often, well, three really, often will have a decreased libido, so you don't desire sex as much, and that's multifactorial. Or you feel like, whew, I'm not going to have a kid. I'm not worried about getting pregnant. So now I want to hang from the chandelier. Or you're really unchanged. And then finally, we have to talk about issues of you just not feeling as attractive in yourself. I'm getting heavier in my waist and I just don't feel right. And I may have memory problems, which you alluded to earlier, or I get Mm -hmm. stiff and achy. All of those are menopausal symptoms that really... Really, it helps if you write them down because you'll have clusters of symptoms that you can start to draw a line between. Because if every time you have a symptom, you go to the doctor because I have 
pain in my hip or I have one other thing, I'm having memory issues and I don't put it all together, you don't know that this is how you are showing up at menopause. That's right. Like you said, it's so different from every woman and Mm -hmm. until you figure out what it is that's happening to your own body, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out, oh, is this my new normal or is this something that I could address? I think it's really important though for us to take that time to assess right around that age, you know, when we get to, you know, the late 40s, early 50s, how we're doing physically, how we feel, Mm -hmm. you know, what changes we're experiencing. As you said, no one knows the patient's body better than the patient, right? And so as women, as we think about these things, it's also kind of confusing because menopause isn't a disease. We're not patients until we seek treatment for menopausal symptoms. Otherwise, menopause is a normal part of life. So sometimes I think women are confused talking to their healthcare provider about it because, well, I'm just supposed to, you know, suck it up, right? This is what happens. But, But it's so important that we actually, like you said, find someone we feel comfortable communicating with to find out, oh, there might be a solution to this and I don't really have to suffer through it. And like I said, you know, I think we're all so good as women mm-hmm. about, you know, just pulling up our pants and getting to work and getting through whatever needs to be getting through. And it doesn't really matter what we've got going on because we're taking care of so many other people. That's but in right. this instance, great time to stop and say, wait a minute, do I really have to suffer with these hot flashes? And do I really right. have to suffer with not having any sexual desire? And it's fantastic when you're able to tell women the answer to those is no, you don't. And, you know, you can find a healthcare provider who will help you deal with all of that. In the midst of all of the things that you're going through with menopausal symptoms, remember, we're getting older. And so you may have now new onset of diabetes, new onset of hypertension. You may have some thyroid issues. It's not like menopause happens in a silo. And so you look at vaginal dryness. And say, well, is this really vaginal dryness or my doctor put me on a new blood pressure medication, which is a fluid pill, so everything is getting dry. Well, I'm having some mood swings. I'm at home with COVID-19. I'm stressed out about the news. I'm stressed out about all that. Is this depression and anxiety related to menopause or is it related to world events? I'm not sleeping well at night. Well, is that because I've started taking a new medication and it's disrupting my sleep? So you really do have to dig through and say, with my medical history, with my current medical status and my age, And the fact that my menstruation is changing and this part of my life is changing, how do we tease through? The best thing to do, and not even to talk about bladder dysfunction, but the best thing to do is to map it out and have good dialogue. So important. So important. Because again, you know, the doctor is seeing, or even like you said, the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant is seeing so many patients and you might have some things written in your chart, but there's not a chance to read through all of it. So going prepared to the appointments that we have that with a little bit of here's what's happening to me lately is a mm-hmm. great way to kind of start that conversation. I was really fascinated with the survey that came out from Healthy Women, and I know you're on the Healthy Women's Health Advisory Council, on aging smart and aging well. And it surveyed women at midlife about so many topics, including, you know, obviously menopause and, and how it impacts it. But it was really interesting to see that women really think that some of these issues are just parts 
of the aging and that they don't do anything about it or that they may talk to their healthcare provider about some of the issues they're having in aging, but they won't reveal the ones that are of most concern to them. They'll start with something else. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I just find that fascinating. Are there other kind of things that you took away from that survey that you think, you know, were really sort of aha? Yes. I mean, I think it's a fascinating survey and I, I certainly want to see it repeated. And just on the ground level, it was a good, diverse survey. But we find out that women are not monolithic. Who knew? Of course we knew. But when you tease away for race, when you tease away for education and socioeconomic status, we know, for instance, that black women typically will rate their physical health much higher than white women. White women and Hispanic women have different rates of rating their mental health versus their physical health. And then, unfortunately, our Hispanic Latino women experience menopause, and they are much more likely, especially if you have other issues such as insurance coverage, et cetera, to rate their health as fair or poor and to place less value on their mental health. So that is fascinating to me, which tells us that your organization, my organizations really need to make sure that we address diverse populations of women around menopause, around osteoporosis and taking ownership of our health, health insurance, which is surely highly debated, actually has an impact on how women perceive their health. Whether there is a medical correlation or not, if you do not have health insurance, typically women say that their health is fair or poor, and that's despite not having necessarily data to support that. That was important to me. And then our ability to talk about sexual health and sexuality. White women compared to black women would broach the topic less as it relates to the survey. And so all of these are very important in looking at women and certainly educational status, which other data shows that the woman that is more equipped from an educational standpoint, and and note that because you have a PhD, that does not mean that you are more intelligent than the high school graduate. And, And we have to make sure we say that you just have more education. And so we also cannot look down on women and say, well, you know, we're judging education and intelligence by where they ended up in the educational system. But making the point that women that have higher degrees of education feel more comfortable in having a conversation and being open about menopausal symptoms, it is not too long ago that we never talked about sex. And certainly you didn't talk about, you know, do I have vaginal dryness or do I want to be intimate with my husband? We didn't have necessarily that quote unquote freedom. And and now those of us in metropolitan areas think, oh, yes, no, we can do whatever. No, but our rural sisters still have some of those confinements. And based on socioeconomics, we know that the liberty to talk about these subjects is different. And this survey actually eliminated some of that. 
Yeah, it really is fascinating, like you said. And again, no surprise that women are diverse and that they are many, many things that impact us, both our family histories and our mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, obviously our environment where we live, you know, who yes. we're around, all of that plays such an important role. It just goes to show again that there's so much more that needs to be done, you know, in studying women's health in talking about women's health and encouraging women to talk to each other or to talk with their family members about their health and kind of, again, get rid of this taboo about menopause, about sexual health, the fact that we are actual sexual beings, all of those things. Again, we have a long way to go, but it's nice that some of these conversations are starting. And speaking of, I know that you're going to be among the experts that are participating in a series coming up for October, which is World Menopause Month, but that Healthy Women is doing a No Pause in Menopause virtual roundtables, and they begin on October 7th and are going to be held every week, every Wednesday during October's World Health Menopause Month and then into November. We'll post about that and provide links along with this podcast. But tell me a little bit about what interested you in being part of this series and what you'll be speaking on as part of the series. Excellent. And I'm calling for every woman to look at the website, to try to log on, and even afterwards to get the information. Because if you're not going through menopause, you have not gone through menopause. If you live long enough, you're going to get there. And so we actually will talk about all during the month, four different sessions. I am going to moderate the session on chronic conditions in menopause like us osteoporosis, diabetes, and obesity. And so that will be my kind of focus, being an internist and geriatrician, where we talk about how all of these, again, menopause is not in a silo. And so there'll be other speakers that talk about other areas. But for me, how does menopause impact obesity? How does it impact osteoporosis, diabetes, hypertension, and all of those things? It's going to be a lot of fun, and I think really educational, a good time for girlfriends to, you know, get on Zoom together to really have a discussion, and hopefully these will spark more discussions in our groups, in our neighborhoods, and we kind of light a match and say, we are no longer going to be in the corner whispering about women's health. We are actually going to take ownership. That's so important. That's really fantastic. And again, we'll make sure that we have all of that information available along with this podcast so that people can register. Like you said, grab a glass of wine because one glass of wine is okay. Again, even for us. That's right. It's okay. Everything in moderation and tune in and find out, you know, really important information. I just have one final question for you now that I have your expertise, but I've heard some women talk about, you know, after a certain age that they don't do regular gynecological visits. Right. They maybe see their internist, maybe, but even that they cut down on. Can you talk a little bit about why a woman, if we're not having babies and we're not having our periods, should still see our gynecologist? Excellent question. And I first want to take it on as a geriatrician with an 80-year-old mother myself who is having her schedule her mammogram right now again. 
My mother is still driving, fully functional, lives alone, scores great on the middle middle state exam, has no dementia. If she were to find something, and I'm going to use mammogram, mammography right now, if something were to be found on a mammogram, what would we do? We would act on it because she is very active and a healthy 80-year-old. That is the rule that you need to use in all of your life. So for the 80-year-old that is incapacitated, that is at the end of their life, no, you no longer need to have screening exams because we're going to let life and life's journey to the end take its course. That is, and I get asked that all the time, when do I stop colonoscopies? When do I stop whatever? Right. There is not a magic age. It is what is your functionality and what will you do with the information? Now, when we talk about gynecologists and even, you know, family practitioners as well as internists all do vaginal exams, pap smears, etc. The American College of OBGYN still recommend an annual pelvic exam for all women. You should have the discussion with your doctor about what should happen with you. You still have a vajayjay, all right? You still have a vajayjay. You still have a vaginal canal. And there are things other than, and even women post-hysterectomy say, well, I don't have a cervix anymore. I don't have a uterus. I don't have ovaries. Why am I having an exam? Well, we know that you are actually, if you're sexually active, you can still get sexually transmitted diseases. The integrity of the vaginal canal and if there's vaginal atrophy, which means that basically things start to get thin and you can have some pain and some increased infections, those things, you just need to know that this tissue, the vaginal tissue is healthy. And so the only way to do that is to look at it. And so, yes, it is still recommended that you get a vaginal exam if you have a cervix, yes, a pap smear, but now we're really saying every three years or so. And then right. if tests have been negative and you're over 65 and they've been normal, then you really do have the discussion, do I need a pap smear? But remember, a pap smear is totally different than a vaginal exam where the doctor or healthcare professional just goes and looks at the vaginal wall. The other issue that certainly has to be discussed is urinary incontinence bladder weakness, leaking, those things, it is a good time to look and see and look at the causes of bladder incontinence, the leaks, and what can be done Mm -hmm. to strengthen the walls of the vaginal canal. And so that's a good reason to go to your GYN pelvic organ prolapse where you do have your uterus and the uterus starts to come out. And so that's another reason just to look And then if you are having vaginal dryness and you're still sexually active, you certainly can have irritation of the vulva. You can have pain in vagina and you can have pain and tears. And so it's important for you to look at those things. So having and maintaining a relationship 
we don't just shrivel up and die because, you know, we can't have babies anymore. We're still right. vibrant in menopause, vibrant right. post-menopause. And so this is just something that we need to do as part of our keeping ourselves together and understanding that we are all one body. So something that your internist may be treating may actually have an effect on your vaginal health. And so just looking at the totality of your body is important. That's a great explanation of why we should continue our gynecological care after menopause. You know, again, it's like you said, the vagina doesn't go anywhere. Still an important part of the body to pay attention to. I'll share, it was funny, when my mom was 90, I was taking her to see a doctor about her osteoporosis, who happened to be in the OBGY Women's Health Center within the hospital. So it's my 90-year-old mother with all of these pregnant women in the waiting room, and she looks at me, and she's like so confused. And she's like, Claire, I'm not pregnant. What am I doing here? <laughs> right. Like, ah, so hard, right? But again, we think, oh, well, I, I don't belong here kind of stuff. Why am I seeing a woman's doctor, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing? But I explained, this is who treats osteoporosis too. So it's all together, and you're a great example to all of these young mothers of a 90-year-old woman still getting her exams. So good for you, right? Exactly well, you have right. completely lived up to the, this is going to be a fun and informative discussion. So I can't thank you enough, Dr. Allison Odie, for joining us and talking about this really important topic. And as I said, we'll make sure that we post all the information about your upcoming roundtables with healthy women that will be happening in October. We'll post those with this podcast. And again, really appreciate you being here and sharing all of this great information. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. Me too. Me too. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk as much as I enjoyed talking with our guest, Dr. Allison Odie. If you enjoyed this episode, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share with all your family and friends this podcast and the important information associated with it. And you too can help provide great information to your family and loved ones. Thank you. And we look forward to having you join us on our next podcast. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.